Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful morning. God has blessed us with some beautiful weather and a wonderful location. Let me first acknowledge and say my give my appreciation for the special music. Stephanie, beautifully done. Jennifer, the scriptural reading. A child will lead them. Doesn't that, when a child reads somehow about the, the innocence of a little child reading a scripture that touches the heart? Well, I suppose in a lot of ways we should all be little children, shouldn't we, in the eyes of God and uh, in our own eyes as well. I want to also compliment our song leaders who have energetically introduced, I mean, all of them have put so much heart into it. Quite often they don't get recognition, but they set the tone. So my compliments to them for their enthusiasm for setting things on the right uh, note and um, introducing us and setting the stage for each one of us as we come up here. So, yes, give them a hand. Give them all a hand. There are certain typologies and antitypes, analogies, metaphors, and parables that we read in scriptures that are used by God to help us better understand certain principles. And one of the things that I'm going to discuss today, one of the principles I'm going to discuss with you today involves a metaphor. And it applies, in a lot of cases, it applies to Israel. In most cases, it applies to Israel, but the implications include the church, and if you really get down to it, there is a certain personal application to it as well. And of course, as I come to you here today, I want this to be seen with a personal application so that each one of us will take home some of the concepts and the principles that God has for us in his scripture. I want you to turn with me to Romans 9, verses 20. Romans 9. There's never a lectern quite big enough for me. Romans 9. We have here in verse 20 a metaphor to help us understand a principle, part of the plan that God has for us as Israel, as the church, and as us individually. In verse 20 says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay? From the same lump he makes one vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor. And we're not talking predestination here. What if God, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might, that, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul is addressing here Israel to one extent, but he's also drawing us into the equation here. And then he goes on to read. I'm going to continue here a little bit. Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people. And this is also quoted in in 1 Peter. 
who were not my people, and her beloved who, were, who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. So God chose Israel as a special nation. They were there to be the showpiece. And he did that because there was a man named Abraham who was faithful. And his faithfulness was translated into obedience. That faith and trust in God translated it into him being obedient to the point he was willing to give up his son as God had commanded him. And so God worked through Abraham and his seed. And eventually, of course, that's that one seed that was a blessing to the whole world. But here we have the implication that this whole plan that involved Israel also involves us as individuals and has application for us as individuals. Paul probably, in his letter to the Romans here, is drawing off a reference to Jeremiah 18. And I'll have you go there with me, please. Turn with me to Jeremiah 18 and verse 1. Of course, Israel, who was the showpiece for God, whom God had specifically prepared and worked with, with all patience, with all diligence, and had entered a covenant with them, they rejected him. But God did not completely reject them. We have this warning here, this commentary on the part of Jeremiah as he was inspired by God. In verse 18, we know that, we know that this, whole, this whole phase of time when the prophets are coming to prophesy, in many cases have been a condemnation or a warning for Israel to turn around. God, time and time again, warned Israel and then Judah to, to repent from their sins. And the word, in verse 1, And the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go to the potter's house. He wants Jeremiah to understand something here. And he wants us, in, in, the, in the same way, to understand the same principle. And there I will cause you to hear my words. And then I went down to the potter's house, have any of you ever watched a potter at work? I decided I would look online. You can go to YouTube, of course. You can see everything that you want there. And there are a lot of, of references to that. But a potter will take clay. It has to be the right kind of clay. And he mixes it with water. And then he works with it and works with it and works with it. And then eventually it's ready to be formed into what the potter wants. And he puts it on a little pedestal that spins around. And then he, with his hands, he molds this particular vessel into what he wants it to be. And then as he does that, he says, okay, there's, there's some air in here or there's some lumps in here. And then he takes it and he breaks it down again and then he works with it. He needs it, he pounds it, and then he works with it and then he builds it up again. And eventually... He gets what he wants. This is the concept that Jeremiah is being taught here. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred. And the, the marred, I want you to focus not necessarily, in this case, Israel was definitely sinning against God. It had gone into an idolatrous state. And there are so many things that we, we can discuss about that 
if you just look in society today, the way society is today, it reflects what was happening in Israel back then. And it was marred. So this, in this case, we're talking about sin. But it's not always sin that God is wanting to change in us. The clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel. But there's a process here. There's a pounding, a kneading, and eventually the formation of this vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? In other words, God can work with this nation of Israel in spite of their sinfulness to try to form them into the vessel that he wants them to be. The merciful God that we have, and as we apply that to us, because there's a personal reference to that, that God will work with us with his mercy. Time and time again, God will work with us as long as we're willing to come before him with a repentant heart. This clay, the one thing that the part that we have in this process of God molding us as the great potter is that we make ourselves malleable in his hands. It's a matter of submitting to the direction and the directives and the acts of God as he works with us. I want you to turn to Isaiah 64 for a minute because there's another reference here to the potter. It happens a few times in Scripture. And there's relevance, of course, to this Feast of Tabernacles, as we will see as we progress along here. In chapter 64 of Isaiah, it's helpful to have that up there, isn't it? I have a bad habit of maybe not repeating the Scripture, and occasionally I get told by my wife, you didn't mention the Scripture or maybe the verse you said Isaiah 64, but you didn't say what the verse was. Of course, if I don't say what the verse is, you're not going to be able to put it up there either. <laughs> verse 8. And, but now, O Lord, we, as we read through the beginning of that chapter, this is a prayer of repentance because of the horrendous filthiness. It refers to Israel's filthy rags uh, uh, and that their righteousness is as filthy rags. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter. And we, and all we are, the work of your hand. In other words, be merciful to us. Work with us. Make us into what you want us to be. It was a prayer of repentance for the, for the uh, unbelievable moral state that Israel was in at that time. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 12, and I'll reference Hebrew a number of times through the course of this message. But in Hebrews 12, really Murray ended up, um, my brother, uh, ended up finishing with this part of uh, chapter 11 and started into verse 12. But I'm going to go a little bit further down from that, although this is all, it's all relevant. Um, let's begin in verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself, referring to the hostilities that Jesus Christ experienced. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
He's preparing us. Paul is preparing us to be ready for hostilities, for challenges, for trials, severe trials. If you think you're going to get through life, and many of you know that already because you've already been through your severe trials, and there'll be more. If you think you will get through life without severe trials, it's not what you were called to. It's not you what you were called to. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. That's in reference to Christ when he was praying. And, and, and of course, there was the, the, in the background, there was always Satan trying to destroy Jesus Christ. And he was praying. It was such fervency that the sweat that was coming from his brow was coming down as blood. None of us have striven to that extent. And you have... And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. And here we're talking about our great God who is working with us. And in this case, in this particular case, he's telling us that as a heavenly father, as as a physical father, let's begin with that, would want to do everything in their care. Now we, we understand that we're talking about a rational physical father, an ideal physical father, because we have fathers, as we even have heard, that do not fit this description. But a father would do his very best to do for, for his son or for his daughter. How much more, our great God, for us, as we as his children. Nor be discouraged when you are, are rebuked by him, A father will rebuke, but he'll do it out of love. His intent is always to form us into his image, into his likeness. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We want to be be very, very careful that that, that we don't discourage God from chastening us. When God chastens us and we feel that, and all of us, I think, have experienced it in our life at one time or other. We know that God's working with us. If we, if we don't feel that happening in our lives, it's, it's as if and it's possible that we've gone to the point where God will no longer work with us. There is a point of no return. There is a point of no return. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In other words, if we respond to the chastening, God will continue to work with us, sons and daughters. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have have human fathers, as I went through this, who correct us. I'm going to skip down here. Now, let's read this. In verse 11, now chastening or a correction seems to be, no, now no chastening or correction seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. None of us really enjoys being chastened. We know it's necessary. We want God to do it. We want God to correct us. We want to be called as children. We don't want to be illegitimate. But it's tough. It's not nice. And sometimes we wonder, you know, what is happening here? 
because that chastening can be very grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, afterward, it yields, there is something very positive that results. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When we yield to God and we accept the chastening and we respond to the chastening, something wonderful happens. We have peace because this chastening produces righteousness in us. And we look at the world. We heard about that yesterday. We look at the world. Nothing will produce peace unless something changes in the heart. That's what righteousness is, a change of heart. And it says to those who have been trained by it, there is an experiential aspect of this. This, this, you know, God can forgive us in an instant. A repentant heart can be forgiven in one instant. But the character of God cannot be formed by fiat. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It has to be, you have to be worked with. There's a training process that God is putting us through. And in order for us to become like him, like him. I want to turn back. We, you know, we quite often resort to Genesis. I think every sermon has up till now. So I'm going to go there as well to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. And I'm just going to read verse 7. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This was the beginning of the creation of a human being on the earth. And the way he did that, he took the ground, he took the dust, and he formed it. The word form there is much like what a potter would do on a wheel. And he made it into his image. Just go back to the previous chapter. It says, then God said, and this is so, so critical and foundational to what we believe about being part of the family of God, being born into the family of God. And eventually that will take place as we're resurrected from the dead or those who are still alive, meeting him in the air. And his kingdom will become sons and daughters of his. But this is a process. He said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and all creeping things that creep on the creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. I want to bring something to your attention. You may have already seen this. The original words of God were, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And then it goes on to say, and God created man in his own image. And he doesn't repeat in our own likeness. Because it would appear to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it would appear to me that what God did was he put all the necessary ingredients as a mind that can think and reason. The free moral agency that is required, choice, free choice as required. The ability to make decisions, which really is 
the image of the living God. But the likeness part is something that God works with us and is experiential. It's something that is happens over a period of time through this molding process, through the potter working with us. And so we have the beginnings here. And, and of course, we heard clearly from the messages that it was shortly after that, that because they had that free moral agency, and that was essential for us to become the children of God, that man chose to believe Satan. They believed Satan was telling the truth, and they believed that God was a liar. And that changed everything. And then, of course, they were restricted outside of the garden. And a plan was put into place to redeem humanity through the seed, the seed of Abraham. This one seed. Of course, we know that seed is Jesus Christ. But God had a, has a plan for us. And that plan is more than just becoming his children and becoming like him. We are going to be useful tools in his plan, as we've heard already. What is it that God will want us to do when he, once he has made us into these useful instruments or, or honorable, honorable vessels? Let's turn to Revelation 5. That may be one of the scriptures that was read. I know Revelation 1 was read, but I'm going to quote from Revelation 5 and verse 10. Revelation 5 and verse 10. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Both here and in Revelation 10, it says he has made us. Even in, in 1 Peter, it says that we are a royal priesthood. It's as if God has said, I know this will take place in the future, but it's, it's, a, it's a done deal. It's like it's already a done deal. It's, I, akin, it's akin, I guess, in my own mind to when someone was betrothed to be married in, in biblical terms, it was as if they were married. It was always it was like a done deal. The, the, um, the fact that God is saying it that this way, it's a sort of an assurance to us that this is what is really going to happen. So he has called us for a specific purpose, not just to fellowship with one another on this earth and during the kingdom, which is going to be a wonderful thing. Um, not just to enjoy the prosperity that will be there, which is a wonderful thing, but to be a part of a team. We heard that. Part of a team as kings and priests to lead others to Jesus Christ. That's what we are being molded into. Turn with me to James, James chapter 1. James 1. It's so important, brethren, that we understand why we are going through the, sometimes the suffering. That suffering comes in many forms. Sometimes it comes in the form of relationships, the hurt, the abuse, 
sometimes it comes in the form of sickness and disease. And one thing for sure that as we get older, it'll come in the form of aging with our, our sore joints, our inability to digest our food properly, our, our, our heart that is no longer pumping the way it should pump. All of these things uh, are, are a source of trials and difficulties. And you, I can look through this audience, and I know some of the trials that some of you have been through, and I know that this is not a new thing for you, nor will it be for all of us. If, you, if you're young enough to have lived the perfect and pristine life, let me assure you, young people, and I don't mean this to discourage you, God is working with you. And when he works with you, you're going to go through trials and difficulties. And those trials and difficulties will be a, a means by which God can work with you to mold you into the likeness of himself. So in James 1 and verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, didn't we just read in Hebrew that it's, it's a grievous thing to go through these trials? Yes, it is grievous. This is not a contradiction. James is telling us that behind all of this difficulty and all of these trials, there is something good that will come of it. And in that, we can rejoice. In that, we can rejoice. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So these severe trials that we're going through are for a purpose. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is working with us to perfect us. To perfect us. Now, I'm going to go through a few examples here that I'm sure you can relate to. You've read these scriptures many a time. But don't think that it's just for these people that we are reading. These are examples for us to look at and say, I understand how God is working. And now I better understand how God is working with me because he's working with each one of you. If you weren't here, if you, if, if you were here or if you weren't here, he wouldn't be working with you. Well, I shouldn't say that. Let me say it the other way around. Because you're here, I'm sure that God is working with you. The other statement would get me into trouble. So I completely retract that. <laughs> Because one of the few of you are going to run up here after me and, and, and uh, correct me on that one. So I think I'm safe with the second statement. I believe you being here is because God has called you here for a purpose. Let me go through a couple of examples. And I'll try to go through these <clears throat> without not a whole lot of detail. In Genesis 37. But to give you the general concept and idea. Genesis 37. There's a man named Joseph. Actually, he's a young lad. And this young lad is privileged. He happens to be his father's favorite. I'm going to editorialize here a little bit. I'm going to abbreviate. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version here for the sake of time. So this young man, Joseph, who happens to be Um, the, the very special child. And 
because of that, and we just read a few details here, but I'm sure that he's done a lot of things. Maybe we could conclude from the things that he's doing and done that he's a little bit spoiled and that he's rubbed his brothers the wrong way. He has this special tunic, this special coat that he wears around, that he promenades around in to identify the fact that he is special and he's not like his other brothers. And then Joseph has these dreams. He has two dreams. One dream is of a, of a 12 sheaves, and they represent himself and his brothers. And you'll remember the story. The one sheaf stood up, and all the other 11 sheaves bowed down to this one sheaf. And you can imagine how well that went over with his brothers. And then he has this other dream. It, it has to do with um, 12 stars, and then there's a moon and the sun, and the moon and the sun and all the other 11 stars bow down to Joseph. And they're not at all fooled by this. They know exactly what Joseph is talking about, that he expects that God has established the fact, this is providential, that eventually his father and mother and his brothers are going to bow down before him. Now, I have a feeling that the way that was presented to them was particularly offensive. And the end result of that is, I want to focus on the fact that there's this spoiled young man with great promise, I might add, but he's still a spoiled young man. And now we have Joseph, who his brothers are planning to kill, but Reuben steps in and says, no, 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 we can't do that. Surely we can't lower ourselves to the point where we'll murder our brother. So they throw him in a pit. And we know there are many typologies here that we could reference. But I won't go there just at this point. Throws him in a pit. And while Reuben is away, Judah says, I got an idea. There's these Ishmaelites going through with their caravan. Let's see if we can make a little bit of money. And so... They decide to sell him for 20 shekels of silver. So some of you maybe see, see this parallel. That's, that You know that Joseph, who eventually becomes the savior, so to speak, for the nation of Israel and how he's thrown into the pit and what that represents and then the 20 shekels that he's sold for and you know all of that. But necess- not necessarily what I want to focus on here. There's this process that he goes through. That's what I want you to, to see. There's this molding process. Joseph is not ready for leadership. Definitely not ready for leadership. But now he's taken away in this caravan. And he's put under the authority of a man by the name of... It'll come to me in a minute. Potiphar, yes. By a man named Potiphar. And Joseph, who is a very diligent and honest young man in every respect faithful to his God, is blessed. And he's blessed to the point where this man Potiphar says, Joseph is such a, trust, such a trust, trustworthy man that I think I can give all that I have under my authority to him. But something happens here. And, you know, um, these experiences that we go through in life seem so harsh in many ways. And it almost seems like God has abandoned us. 
if you felt abandoned by God at some time in your life, then read some of these stories that we're looking at here. Because I, w- I wonder if that was going through Joseph's mind. Has God abandoned me? I've been faithful. And now this woman who's got an eye for me is after my case. She's, what's the term when you follow somebody around? You know, you're stalking. This woman is stalking me. And she's looking for every opportunity to, stay, to have a, a, a spare moment when there's nobody around. And she finds that. She gets rid of the, all the, the uh, servants. And there is Joseph, left, with, left alone with this woman. And let that be a lesson to all of us, not to find ourselves in that position. Left alone with this woman. And he does the right thing. He flees. And you have to give him credit. Here's this young man. And with this great temptation, and he flees. But the end result of that, of course, is that she accuses him of having assaulted her sexually. And Potiphar, I don't know, I can't read between the lines, but I have suspicions that Potiphar had, maybe had some doubts about his wife saying that. So he doesn't kill him, because normally I would say that this man is worthy of death. He doesn't kill him. He decides he'll get rid of him. And he'll put him in jail. So he goes to jail. And he's in jail. And then during that time that he's in jail, and we don't know the time frame exactly. It could be years. It probably is years. There are two individuals thrown in jail with him. One is the baker and one is the butler. And they, they want to know what their, uh, what their destiny is. So Joseph um, has this dream. And he tells them that the baker is going to be killed. And the butler will be restored to his duties at the Pharaoh's, in the Pharaoh's household. But he tells this fellow, he says, when you go there, remember me. Mention my name so that you will, you know, hopefully that I can get out of this jail. But surprisingly, he forgets all about Joseph. The butler forgets all about Joseph, and two years later, it comes to mind. It comes to mind because the Pharaoh has a dream, and he wants the dream interpreted, and then the butler realizes, hey, I remember somebody that can interpret dreams, this man Joseph, who was in, the, in prison. And by the way, while he was in prison, the prison guard made him charge of everything that was there. Every time that Joseph does something, he's blessed, but then something happens, it looks like God is in some way abandoned him, but he didn't. And he has this dream about the, the fact that there's going to be seven years of famine and that we need to, uh, and it was, there was, um, you know, these seven cows that were emaciated compared to the fat cows, and that was how he, and he interpreted the dream for the Pharaoh. So the Pharaoh made him in charge of everything, much like we read, heard about Daniel. Second in command, in such a way that the Pharaoh gave him all of the responsibilities in Egypt, which was really at that time the greatest nation around. And as a result of that, because they had saved seven years when there were seven years of plenty, during the seven years of lean, it provided for all of the people in Egypt. And it made the Pharaoh very rich. And people from outside of the country, including in this case um, Joseph's father, Isaac, 
sent his sons down there and said, look, we haven't got no more food. We have no more food. Go down there and, and see if you can buy some food for us before we starve to death. Now, I, won't, I don't want to go too far into this story other than the fact that there is, at the end of this, in Genesis 50, in verse 15, we see a man that has now come to the point of maturity. He's ready. He has been going through this process and he has become a great leader because God has worked with him all these years. In chapter 50, in verse 15, and Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead and they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for the evil that we did to him. And so they sent, a mess, they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, they're hoping that they can give something to, the, to, to Joseph that will mitigate what they've done to him. And thus, you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and, your, and, and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of your servants, of the God of your father and Joseph. And, and Joseph wept when they spoke. He was moved by their repentance. And then his brothers went and fell down before his face, even as it was predicted that they would. And behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place am I in the place of God, he said. It's not my it's not my prerogative to, to take your life. But as for you, you meant it for evil against me. This is the point. All of this that we're going through here is that there was a purpose. This was all providential. God was allowing him to go through all of these experiences as he's allowing us, you and me, to go through all our trials and difficulties and personal experiences. He says that you meant it for evil. And sometimes it seems that people are doing things against us that are evil. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So God has molded this man for a physical function to be head of this country, this world power to save them. We, on the other hand, have been called to withstand all the trials and the difficulties with a purpose, a purpose, as was mentioned, far beyond being a, a diplomat in the world, far beyond having worldly prominence, to be in the kingdom of God as part of that calling under Jesus Christ as the king of kings. Who are the ki- he says, it says that he's the king of kings. Who are the kings that he's talking about, the small kings? He's talking about us. He's talking about us. The second example I want to give you, and I'm going to have to speed through this a little bit because it's taking up more time than I thought. The second example is Moses. In, in, and I'm going to, again, it's it beginning chapter 2 and verse 10. We know the situation there that change, things change dramatically over these dec- uh, centuries to the point where the Pharaoh was no longer favorable towards Israel. And he was going to destroy all of the children. But, it, but some of the children were spared because the midwives would 
deliver the children and rush them off to their mothers. In one case, there was a baby called Moses who was taken up by the Pharaoh's daughter and taken into the Pharaoh's household. He was nursed by his own mother. Uh, Amazing things that God can do in order to make things work out. Nursed by his own mother. And for 40 years he was trained in 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 the Pharaoh's house. I'm going to turn to Acts 7 and verse 21. Acts 7 and verse 21. Acts 7 and verse 21. We get a little bit of insight here that we don't get when we read through the Hebrew text. But here in the Greek, verse 21, this is what Stephen is inspired to write. And he's, I'll begin in verse 20. And at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months, but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. He was considered a son in the Pharaoh's household. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. This man was a powerful man, but when he was 40 years old, It came to his heart to visit his brethren. He did not forget his brethren. And we know the story that this man who had been trained in the Pharaoh's household, probably equipped as a great military genius, or at least well-versed in military affairs, who is a great orator, as we read there in Acts 7, finds himself reflecting on his own brethren. He never forgot his roots. And as a result of that, when he saw one of his Brothers, one of his fellow Israelites being beaten, he murdered, he killed the Egyptian. And at that point, he recognized that maybe his life would be in jeopardy. And so he fled. And for 40 years, he was in the, in the wilderness, so to speak, and as a shepherd. You see, God couldn't use Moses with all his abilities, with all his training, with all his education, with all his oratory skills, he could not use Moses yet. He needed to be, as with Joseph, he needed to come down a few notches. And at the end of 40 years, God calls him. Again, I'm telling you this in a nutshell. And he says, go to the Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, who, me? This is the great orator. This is the, this is the warrior. He says, who, me? I can't do that. It's impossible. I can't, I, can't, I can't even speak. Wait a minute. Remember what we read in Acts 7? This man was a skilled orator, a powerful man. And now he's also, we don't necessarily need to go there, but he's also called the meekest man. And, of course, I say that with Christ being the exception. The meekest man that ever lived. Moses had gone from being this great leader who God could not use to this humble shepherd who he could use. Something took place, but it took 40 years, and now he could use Moses to lead his people out. And actually, he was so humble that he didn't feel he was worthy or able to. And 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 God says, okay, who made your mouth? Who created you? Who did all of these things? And Moses said, I still can't do it. So he said, okay, I'll give you Aaron. He can speak for you. 
But he was able to use Moses in a powerful way. But it wasn't, it wasn't because of his training as an Egyptian. It was because he had been humbled in the wilderness as a shepherd. There's a lesson in that for us, of course. A great lesson in that. If you want to look at a scripture, it's Numbers 12, verse 3, where it says he was a very humble man. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I suppose that's referring to that particular context. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he was always the most humble man. But at that time, he was called by God as the most humble man, or um, meek man, on the face of the earth. I want to just look at uh, something here before we, we carry on here. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. God didn't really want the people of Israel to have a king. But he knew that was inevitable. And he said, if you're going to have a king, this is what I would expect him to be. These are the qualities that God wants in a king. And remember, you and I are training to be kings and priests. We're going through this molding process, this very difficult and arduous process with all of the trials and difficulties, which are part and parcel of that process. And he, goes, he says here in verse 14, And when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king of whom your Lord God chooses. I want somebody that has certain characteristics and certain qualities. And it has to be somebody from among your brethren. In other words, I want somebody that has your best interest at heart. Foreigners may not have your best interest at heart. I want somebody that does not want to multiply horses unto himself. I don't want somebody that's searching for power or authority, but that's going to trust in me. It's not looking to their own power and authority, but to the power and authority of God. I'm not wanting somebody who's going to multiply himself wives. You know, I hear, I've heard the term, and I'm not sure if I'm using it correctly, trophy wives. They were there back in those days. Kings had so many wives. It was a matter of prestige. I don't want somebody that's looking for prestige. And he goes on to say, also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the law in the book from one before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Some of the very stories that we were reading. That we may learn to fear, that's one of the reasons we're here at the feast, to fear to stand in awe and deep respect of the Yahweh, his God, and to be careful, careful to observe all the words of his law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments of, to the right hand or to the left. So I want somebody that's not going to be polluted by the power and authority that they have. And in order to do that, read these scriptures daily. In fact, write them out. 
so that you never forget them, so they become part of who you are. And that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. I want to just briefly mention Job 1, verses 6 to 12. Again, I'm just going to address that very briefly. Because there is a, we know that behind the evil that takes place, there is a spirit power that's there. And one of the things about the book of Job that's quite unique is that it sees beyond the veil that we have before us today to actually show us things that were happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. And in this case, we know that Satan comes before God the Father and God, I think, sets him up here. It says, did you see my servant Job, the righteous man who fears God and his Jews or hates evil? And Satan says, sure, sure he does. You've blessed him in all these ways. Of course he would. Why wouldn't he? But if you take away these things from him, just see if he blesses you. He'll curse you. And then to make the story short, little by little, everything except his wife is taken away from him. All his possessions are taken away from him. All his children are killed. And Job is left on this ash heap, scraping his boils to the point he just wants to die. And through these experiences, and I don't know if every, any of us have ever been maybe quite to that point. But through these experiences, Job questions God. And his good friends who were there were not such good friends because they said, Job, the reason you're going through these, that's why I mentioned it at the beginning, this chastening of the Lord, or sometimes this, the chastening of the Lord is to correct sometimes our sins. But sometimes God works with us and allows us to go through these severe trials, not because we've sinned, but because God wants to bring us to a level, a different level of perfection. And we know near the end of this whole scenario that God actually speaks to Job and he says, is it possible that you're questioning me, the God who created everything? As if I don't know what I'm doing. The one who created, you know, he talks about the gestation, gestation period of a, a goat. He talks about the creation of the universe. He talks about these creatures that he's created. And he says, and you're questioning me? And then Job comes to his senses, so to speak. He comes to a level of understanding where he says, no. He says, I repent in dust and a sackcloth and ashes. He says, because... He says, now I know God. He's come to the point, and he never questions God again. And God never actually tells him the reason behind it. Other than the fact that all he needs to know is God is, is who he is. Perfect in every way. Omnipotent, omniscient, and above all, he's the God of love. And because of that, all we have to do, like Job, is to trust him through this. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you will be going through, trust him through it all. I'm going to give you one last example here. And this example is one that you might think is a little strange. The example is Jesus Christ himself. In Hebrews 2, turn with me to Hebrews 2. Because you say to yourself, what is it about the perfect Christ, the sinless Christ, that would require him to go through trials and difficulties. 
In chapter, in chapter 2, in verse 10, we read here something that sometimes makes us feel a little uncomfortable. For it is fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect. How? Instantaneously? He grew up as a little child. He matured as a young man. He went into the synagogues. He taught with un, unbelievable insight. But it says here that he was made the author of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Perfect. The word perfect has reference to not because Christ was marred in any way but to a level of excellence and ability to reflect and to empathize with others, a level of maturity that he could not have reached unless it was through suffering. And it says, And I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing praises to you. Now, this word perfect is the same word that we read in Matthew 5, verse 48. And I don't let, you can just write it in your notes if you're writing notes, and I suggest that's a good idea to do. Um, it says that, become you therefore perfect. It's a process. Become you therefore perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. The perception here is a level of spiritual maturity that reflects the likeness of God himself. In, in verse, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 17 and 18 of the same chapter, Hebrews 2. Verse 17 and 18, it says, this gives us a little hint as to part of this um, process that even Jesus went through. Therefore, in all things I had to be made like, my, like his brethren. He had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Do you see how that relates to us as well? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that's unique to Jesus Christ. That is unique to Jesus Christ. For in that he himself suffered being tempted or tested, he is able to aid those who are tempted or tested. It gives, it gives Christ as our high priest the ability to relate to our suffering and to act as our, on our behalf as our high priest. The same thing is being said down here in verse 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. That allows us to come boldly. So he says, therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the help of time of need. The word perfect is teleos, or it has to do with, of course, a level of perfection, maturity. Chapter 5 and verses 8, same book. Chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9. It says of Hebrews, though he was a son, he wasn't exempt. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, and having been perfected rather, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. First Peter 4 and verses 12 and 13. Just a few more scriptures. First Peter 4. 
1 Peter 4. Could have gone through the book of Hebrews, talked about all the different people, uh, Joseph and Moses, who are mentioned there. Moses, who bore the reproach. It says that he, he, was, he was rather than um, share in the privileged position as the Pharaoh's son, he bore the reproach of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? He bore the reproach of Jesus Christ. Now let's just read here in 1 Peter 4, and verses 12 and 13. His beloved, do not think it is a strange thing, the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. I guess that's what I'm saying to each one of us. Be ready for it. It's going to happen. It's not a strange thing. It's not an anomaly in the Christian life. It's the reality. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. And that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God, and the spirit of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer, we've heard this as well in the message, as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin on the house of God. And it begins with us first, that we will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now, if the righteousness, if, if the righteousness one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the, and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. As a faithful creator. And the last chapter, or rather the last verse I want to read is in Zechariah 14. The one that was read so beautifully by one of our young people, Zechariah 14. And again, we have, I believe, some... We have a metaphor here in reading this. It says in verse 19 of Zechariah 14, This shall be the punishment of, the, of Egypt. We know what it's talking about here. It's talking about the millennium. And the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. You and I are called to be kings and priests to these people who at this point in time will resist the influences of God. The beginning of the kingdom of God will not be quite as smooth sailing as some maybe believe. There will be some resistance. And God will see to it. But you and I will have a part in dealing with these people. In that day, holiness of the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. What on earth does that mean? What does that mean? Well, there's a symbolism here. I don't claim to under, have understood this, but there, some of the commentators say this. 
that when horses were trained for war, if they went into battle having not been prepared, the noise of a battle was so startling to them that they, they uh, would, would um, rise up or they would, they would, they would run away uh, or they would throw their, their riders off their horses. They would rear up. That's the word I'm looking for. They would rear up. So they would train with these bells on which made all kinds of noise so that they could fight in the battle of war and be ready for that. And it's saying that those, this is symbolism, of course, that these, this training of these horses will no longer be for that purpose. That they'll wear these bells on there, but these bells will be an indication of the kingdom of God. It will be an example very similar to that. They'll, they'll, they'll um, take the, their swords and their spears and they'll shape them into pruning hooks and implements of agriculture. There's something similar here to that. And then it goes on to say here, the pots in the Lord's house, the pots in the Lord's house, those, those pots that God, the potter, has molded. There is a symbolism here. Those pots that he's molded out of clay. You know, Paul uses that reference, these clay vessels, these uh, vessels that we're in right now, these temporary vessels. In the, Lord's, in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. There will be a change that will take place. These clay vessels, and if you know the story, and we talked about what happened when King Nebuchadnezzar took over Israel, they took all of the stuff out of the temple, and they took it and put it in their own temple. That was an act of saying that this God that you worship is in submission to our God, but these bowls that were there were made of pure gold. And it's the symbolism here is that these pots that have been molded by God and sometimes pounded back down to get rid of the air and to get rid of the, the hard spots in it have been molded for a specific purpose. And now they'll be as bowls before the altar to serve the great God. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts and everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. What does that mean? Well, it's possible that that means that we'll be there in working with Jesus Christ to feed these people spiritual food. Maybe I'm taking some liberties there. If I am, well, you can take it with a grain of salt. In that day, there will be no longer be Canaanites in the house of the Lord of hosts. No more people that will come into the temple of God. Um, that are against God, against his people, unwilling to yield to him. But those who will be willing, even as we are willing or ought to be willing, by yielding to God to be molded into his likeness and co-heirs with Jesus Christ in this crucible we call life, as God works with us and as we go through these hardships and difficulties, and brethren, I think time and again we've been warned that that will happen, to realize that the joy behind that all, because it is grievous, but there is a joy behind it all, is that there's a purpose. God is molding us into his image and after his likeness for a very specific purpose so that we can be kings and priests in the kingdom of God.